Good morning, church. I was just noticing as I had been up and down those steps a couple of times that I'm going to always have to wear my pedometer because I'm going to get extra steps on Sunday. That is really awesome. Very exciting. So, now I also want to tell you that uh, for me, when I do the scripture reading, I do it in the context of preaching. So I wanted you to know that because I know that typically the pastor starts with the, sir, uh, with the scripture reading, and I don't want you to think, oh, gee, that poor thing, she's nervous, though I am, and uh, she's forgotten the scripture altogether. No, we will get to the scripture, but in the context of the sermon. It is ever so good to be with you and to share the word of God with you. Will you pray with me before we begin? Gracious and holy God, we enter into your presence with great expectations. May the meditations of our hearts and minds and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. For you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. It was June of 2015, and I took my place in the line. It was a long line, and with me, beside me, was Kelly and two of my pastor friends. It was my ordination day. That line went down the hall, around the corner, and down a flight of steps in the beautiful church of St. Andrew in Plano. Our class of ordinance was a large class of ordinance. There was 18, or there was 12 of us, not like Ricky's 18 in his class, but we were still a large body of people. In the sanctuary, someplace seated in that huge venue was my family, family who had traveled to be with me on this special day from as far away as Pennsylvania, Idaho, Colorado, Georgia, and Kentucky. And in in the congregation also was some friends that had come to be around me who had watched me grow up and become a minister in many ways. Friends from my home church of Christ United Methodist Church, friends from my church where I served as an intern, Holy Covenant, and friends from my most recent church of First United Methodist Church in Sherman, and some new friends that I had just made in my new appointment at Jacksboro. It was time to process into that service. Now, some of you have been to that service. You know that it is a service of high regalia and pomp and circumstances. And as the music and organ played, and we all sang as a congregation, the church's one foundation, this amazing processional of the bishop and his cabinet and uh, many members of the Board of Ordained Ministry, all of those who were going to be commissioned and all of those who were going to be um, uh, ordained and their families and their loved ones came down the center aisle. And as we sang that church's one foundation, I am a W. I am near the end of the line, okay? So by the time I got in there, we were probably on, I would bet, the seventh time through that song. So, it was overwhelming. It was a sea of black robes and red stoles and people from all over who would come to see this special time. 
I sat in the pew that night, and I looked, I remembered at one point, I looked up at the cross, and it's this beautiful gold cross that hangs from, that kind of from, suspended from the, the ceiling, and behind it is this beautiful round stained glass window, much like the beautiful stained glass windows in here. And I can remember, as I looked up there, I all of a sudden said, oh my gosh, this is forever. This is for the rest of my life. This is a lifetime commitment, an eternal covenant. The gravity of my call on my life was overwhelming in that moment. I realized that in that moment I was no longer my own. I had turned my life literally over to God in the first place and literally over to the church in the second place. So recently, we have been going through a time of transition, y'all, with me and Brian. We, and we went to this um, workshop called Passing the Paton. It was great. I saw Virginia there and Fred Renfro, and, and I think even Jim was there. And, and we got to learn about how it is that we pass the baton from one pastor to another. And while we were at that, that workshop, they suggested that we begin to talk and to teach about our Methodist ecclesiology. Now, ecclesiology is one of those big, fancy church words that simply means the way we do church. So I am going to talk this week and the next couple of weeks about the way we do church, the way Methodists do church. There's this question, why do Methodists change pastors? Especially when you have one like Brian that you love so much, it's not like you weren't getting along. Why is it that we change pastors? Well, there's a difference between our system and system of our brothers and sisters who might worship in the Baptist church or in the Church of Christ. We're a part of a connectional system. They're a part of a congregational system. The connectional system sends their pastors out from the bishop. In a congregational, they call their pastors to be with them. And yet, whether they're sent or they're called, they generally serve for a season of time. Now, I need to tell you that all of us are called. We believe that. All of you, every single one of you, from the tiniest baby to the oldest member, are called. We're all called to be a part of God's holy family and to be in the ministry of all believers. And yet there are some disciples from among us who are gifted in a particular way and whose gifts are recognized by the church, and they offer themselves up in full-time leadership of the church. This pattern of being set apart for that particular thing has its roots in the early church. It is in the early church where we find evidence that um, as people were called forward to be in full-time ministry, they were laid hands on, and they were assigned to specific ministries in the, amongst the world. And so... Um, I want to read a portion of that as the early church began to understand who they were and what they were called to be a part of. I'm going to read from Acts, Acts in the sixth chapter. This is the story of how the early Christians became a church. And this is the story of the first time that there was laying on of hands. 
Now, on the screen, you will see verses 1 through 4. I'm actually going to read through verse 6. So listen now for God's holy word as we read it this morning. Now, during these days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists, that is the non-Jews, complained against the Hebrews, the Jews, because their widows were being neglected in a daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, This is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourself seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom you have appointed to whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the serving of the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and Holy Spirit, together with six of his friends. And they had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread, and the number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I'd say this early church was experiencing growing pains. They were experiencing a time when things were becoming more um, complex. Gone were the days when they could gather around a simple mill and share the stories of Jesus in a small setting. They were growing in size in such a way that they had to find bigger venues to speak and to teach. They had to find bigger places to uh, gather around the table for Holy Communion. And as is with any situation where things grow fast and change has to happen rapidly, uh, the logistic challenges came in to be, as well as the theological ideas came in conflict with each other. And as we are in the modern church, some people began to complain, right? They complained that there was this problem that some were being fed while others were not. And those who were complaining were thinking that it was their own who were not getting the short end, who were getting the short end of the stick. So these early apostles had to acknowledge that serving and taking care of the widows and those who were poor were so intricately woven into the gospel message that they could not um, not uh, listen to this complaint. And yet, the logistics of it was that they were so busy with sharing the word that they had to find a way in which to continue to minister to the needs of the people who were gathering. And so they got this idea. The idea was the birth of the Koinonia ministry. I mean, I'm sorry, the diakona ministry. That's the Greek word for caring, loving, serving. And the earliest budding of these ordination came to be when they selected from among them people who were gifted 
with the gifts of caring and seeing to the needs of all people, and they laid their hands on them. Stephen and his six brothers were ordained to a particular kind of ministry, while Peter and the other eleven were tasked with the ministry of the word. Some of you may recognize this book right here. This is our book of discipline. In the front of this book is things that we believe as United Methodist, and then uh, the majority of the book is the ecclesiology, the way we do church. And, um, and as you might know, sometimes it can get a little circular, right, Ricky? But there's some really clarifying words in here. I love the way they talk about ordination. What is ordination? How do we understand that as United Methodists? And this is what it says, in part, out of out of uh, paragraph 303 in our Book of Discipline. The ordination to this ministry is a gift from God to the church. In ordination, the church affirms and continues the apostolic ministry through persons empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a gift from God. It's how God gifts us as we gather as a people. And it is the furthering of that apostolic succession of ministry. In fact, in the earliest forms of the church, before the Protestant movement, every priest or everyone who was ever ordained could trace their ordination back through the laying on of hands all the way to Peter on Stephen. Now, we've lost that uh, tradition in our Protestant roots, and yet I'd like to think that that tradition remains. A part of you and a part of me is that apostolic tradition of passing that yoke down, just as I wear this yoke today. So then I run against the question, tell me then again why you don't get to pick your own pastors. Well, there's a history there. We are a church that looks to um, our founder, which is John Wesley. And John Wesley preached over 40,000 sermons in his life. And he didn't preach them to the same congregation, thank goodness, right? (laughs) He was known to preach them over and over, and he did that as he rode throughout the communities. He got on his horse, and he went from place to place, and he set up these societies that later became kind of the origins of the the local congregations. And along the way, Wesley decided that it was important to begin to appoint others to also preach. He handed them his own sermons, and they, when they, in their early days, they were asked to preach John Wesley's sermons. Um, I will not be preaching a John Wesley sermon verbatim, okay? I promise. Because they're a little long and kind of boring sometimes. But uh, this was especially true as uh, the movement went to the United States. And, uh, and it began to spread really rapidly. And so there's this letter that John Wesley writes to one of the uh, leaders here in the United States, and, and he's addressing, obviously, this question about why do we have this itineracy going on. And he says, We have found by long and consistent experience that a frequent exchange of preachers is best. This preacher has one talent that, that another and another has another talent. No one whom I've ever known has all the talents that are needful for beginning, continuing, and perfecting the work of grace in the whole congregation. So now we know why. Let's talk a moment about how. 
our process of making appointments is a consultative one. Now that's a big fancy word for we do it together. We do it in cooperation with the needs of the community. Now, recently it was the Candace Summit meets on Saturdays and this is two times a year and this is an opportunity for new people to come and learn about ministry in a formal way in the United Methodist Church. So we were gathering on one Saturday and the bishop came in to have lunch with us and he sat down and began to answer questions uh, that they might have of him. One candidate asked, um, can you tell me a little bit about the appoint how you make appointments? The bishop laughed and responded, well, it's a little early in your process for you to be worrying about that because it takes a while to get to that point. But he went on to say, at first and foremost, we look at the mission field. He said uh, when he first came, he really stretched his cabinet to go back and to bring like a total and complete understanding of the life of every congregation that that district superintendent was responsible for to really understand the ministry that each of you are doing right here in Decatur. That was Marvin's job. And to bring that back to the cabinet and to understand exactly what the needs of the congregation and the mission field were, and then to look, and then to look at the gifts of the pool of pastors, and to, uh, to make the best possible appointment for that particular season in that particular time of that congregation. So second to anything else is a pastor's personal situation, whether a pastor has been there a long time or not, whether a pastor has a particular family need or not. That's secondary. Now, I have to say they're kind and they're generous and they listen to our needs. And they try not to do harm because that's one of our Methodist understandings. But when I first came into ministry and I was appointed to Sherman as an associate pastor, I came in like most young uh, uh, newly appointed ministers and thought, gee, I'm going to have a long tenure here in Sherman. I'm an associate. There's no reason for me to move. I'm going to get my roots in real deep here in Sherman. And God had something else in mind. The interesting thing is that even though the bishop and the cabinet has their ideas and the church has their ideas, God also has God's idea. And God began to work within me and I began to realize that I should uh, be an, a senior pastor, that I should be leading and uh, not um, uh, doing associate work that I was doing at that particular time. So I had a conversation with Marvin, and that led to my next appointment. But while I was sitting in that pew on my ordination night, which was right after I had been appointed to Jacksboro, with that uneasiness in my stomach about the gravity of what I had just made a commitment to do for the rest of my life, I really began to get it. That this appointive system means that this call that God has placed on my life is bigger than me. It is a call to the whole church of Christ. 
and it is to be lived out and served in the life of a local congregation for just a season. As I sat there on that pew with that sea of black robes and red stoles around me, I felt both connected and isolated at the same time. I was not alone. God was with me, and Kelly was beside my, was sitting right beside me. I had not made this decision in isolation. Kelly and I had talked about it long before I decided to say yes to itinerant ministry. And he continues to serve as my partner in ministry, as you will find out in our life here. But it was in that moment that I realized that it was a commitment between me and God. It was me and a long line of sisters and brothers who had accepted this set-apart ministry to lead others in the development of their faith. So, I want to go back to this consultative process because when Marvin knew that he needed to appoint a new pastor here, He did it with you in mind. He knew your story. He knew the work that you had done with Brian to set a vision and values to continue to build new places for new faces through the work over at Pecan Street Mission. And he knew that you were a faithful congregation willing and looking for a new challenge to put your vision into. At the same time, I had been praying for a new opportunity, the next opportunity for God to show me where I could lead others in finding a new and exciting vision that was out there that God was calling them to, and how do we get there together? And after many days and months of praying this prayer over and over, the phone rang, and at the other end, it was Marvin Geyer. And he said, Cassie, I have a new appointment, and I'm so excited to tell you it's Decatur. And he didn't, couldn't see me, but I was doing the happy dance in the background. And I said, yay, that is really awesome to hear. In this time of passing the baton, we have just cleared the changeover zone. Without losing momentum, I have received this baton from Jim, who received it from Brian just a couple of weeks ago. And without losing momentum, you have bathed this transition with your prayers and your support and your love. I sense that this baton has been covered with tears. It's been covered with prayers And by the looks of it, it's been covered with grimy little sweaty hands from time to time. This worship service begins the first Sunday of my new season as your next pastor. You see, friends, God has called me into set-apart, ordained ministry. I am Methodist and I am itinerant. I am pleased to accept the challenge to live among you for this next season of our ministry together. And I give thanks to God who will surely bless 
our times in ministry. Amen.